Hey, this is Melissa Green, and you are listening to Grace Point Church's podcast. Our vision statement at Grace Point is loving God, loving self, and loving others. If you want to find out more, visit gracepoint.net. In relation to our children, three weeks ago, we had a guest, Phyllis Tickle, and she spoke provocatively, informatively, um, inspirationally, I thought, regarding the state of the Christian church in our present time, but also she spoke to the state of the Christian church in terms of the future, i.e. our children's lives. I spent the past two Sundays responding to her ideas, and I want to do that a little bit more today specific to our children. The Sunday evening of our time with Phyllis, those of you that read her books, you know what she was talking about. Those of you who were here that day, you have a, a real sense of what she was positing in the last two weeks, my response, if you weren't here for her, you know, in essence, what she's saying about the future of the church. In our Sunday evening time with her, we were able to interact with her and ask her, even ask some questions. And one of the questions that came in that night, one that stood out for me um, very, very expressly, was asked by a young mother in our congregation. Uh, Jessica Walstenholm. Jessica and Dave are faithful members of our congregation. They're not here this morning. Uh, the kids are sick, but they're watching online. Uh, Dave and Jessica also work faithfully in our children's ministry, teaching um, our five and six-year-olds. But her question to Phyllis that evening, and I won't get it exactly, but this is the essence of her question to Phyllis. She asked, what does all of this this proposition about us moving into the age of the Holy Spirit, what does all of this mean in terms of how we presently teach our children about God, about Jesus, about spirituality? How do we take all of this information, how do we understand what God is doing in our present age and apply that and appropriate that for our children? Let me say this about Phyllis. One of the things that I really like about her is that in spite of her education, her erudition, her keen, keen mind, she was not reluctant to say, either personally or before the congregation, she was not reluctant to say at times, I don't know. And to me, that always lends credibility to any expert who's secure enough to from time to time admit such, that they don't know everything. And that answer, I don't know, is the answer that she gave Jessica in response to her question about how do we appropriate this for our children. And as appreciable, and I just mentioned that, as the humility was in that moment, I've got to tell you, I was sorely disappointed. I was not sorely disappointed in Phyllis. I appreciated her response, but I was disappointed in the fact that of all the questions offered, that was the one that I wanted, that I most wanted a profound, informative response to. And frankly, as a Christian parent and as a Christian pastor, I have not stopped thinking about that question. How do we, Anna, apply all of this to them? The little ones that were on the stage and who really are the chief charge of what we do as a church. Phyllis's response, I must say, in defense of her, was in no way indicative of a lack of concern. She is a mother of seven and a grandmother to many. She is a lover of children. I don't think her response was an admission on her part that there's not an answer I think simply as an academic, 
She obviously had not given herself to thinking about that particular question in her work, which I would say is one of the deficits of the work and should be the added chapter. We gotta talk about our children and everything we do spiritually. How does this apply? As a Christian pastor, as a Christian parent who resonates with Phyllis's ideas and have been moved by them deeply before she came and after, I want you to know that that question, how does all of this apply to our children, is a question that I have thought about I am thinking about, and I do believe there is an answer to, and I would like to at least address that answer um, today by the reading of some very, very important scriptural text and to the application of some reason and leaning even on a good bit of tradition. Central to Phyllis Tickle's theory or hypothesis, depending on how you see it, is the idea captured in the title of her latest book, her latest book is called The Age of the Spirit. Here, Age of the Holy Spirit. Her idea is that the Christian church is coming into a time, um, put your thinking caps on today, this is an important one, and after the first service, I think it's one of my five best, so I'm, 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 I'm under pressure now. I'm like the old preacher said, oh, Lord, take it easy on me. I'm an old man. I about blessed my own self today, but this is... This is good material, and it, it could not be preached poorly at such good material. I'm gonna to try to do my best for it. But Phyllis posits the idea that the Christian church is coming into a time where our chief emphasis in terms of how we relate to and see God is shifting to the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't sound like a liberal Anglican talking. It sounds, Mark, like Pentecostal world we came from, but it's not. It's Phyllis Tickle and a lot of others just like her, pundits and observers of the church. She posited in looking at the Judeo-Christian story, a story that begins in earnest 4,000 years ago with a guy named Abraham. She posits that when you look at this 4,000-year-old so far story, that from Abraham, now we're using Trinitarian language now, the language of the Christian church and the triune God, she posits that from Abraham to Jesus, this is her theory, from Abraham to Jesus, God was chiefly known to us as Father, Creator, Eternal God, King of Kings, the big guy that created everything. And I don't think it takes a careful reading of the Old Testament to say that when you read those 39 books we call the Hebrew Scriptures, you have to do a pretty close reading to see the eternal Son and this third member of the Trinity we call the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, Christian theologians, in retrospect, go back and we find him as the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we see the Spirit of God in the Psalms as the Holy Spirit. But to the minds of those who live from Abraham to Jesus, we have to admit they did not see a triune God, a three-person God. They saw God as Father, and then God came as Son. Now, upon reflection, we were careful to say God didn't become Son as a new venture, but Christian theology was careful to say God had always been Son, but that vision had been suppressed. That vision had not been clearly expressed. God was known fully as Father, but then God came in Son, and the Johannine literature, the Gospel of John, John said, well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and then the Word was made flesh. So we took that 
in Christian theology and said the sun was always there. You just didn't see him very well. Phyllis says that from Jesus to the present time, these 2,000 years, that the chief way that we have related to God in the Christian church's first 2,000 years is Christologically. It's a fancy word for in Christ form, the study of Christ, the knowledge of Christ. We have related to God in the first 2,000 years, enamored by, stupefied, in tremendous wonder at this vision of God, this expression of God that we know now theologically as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, God in flesh. And Phyllis says for 2,000 years, he has been our fixation and we have focused on the Christ. Not that we haven't expressed God as Father and not that we haven't given heed to the Holy Spirit, but the chief primary way we have known him we call the church not Spiritans, we call the church Christian. And so Jesus has been our focus. She says that we are now shifting from seeing God primarily through the lens of the eternal son, our eternal brother Jesus. She says that moving forward, the church is beginning to relate more to God as the Holy Spirit. Now that's not hard for me to wrap my mind around because I grew up fifth generation within the Pentecostal movement, a movement that really found its birth in the latter part of the 19th century, really the first part of the 20th century, and as a movement denominationally within the body of Christ, it's only 100 years old. But it's not 100 years old to me in a fraction of the body of Christ, it's 46 years of my life and five generations deep. And I can tell you, speaking for Pentecostals, as much as we emphasize God as Father and Son, the Holy Spirit really was our chief emphasis. And those of you from a Pentecostal background know that our great emphasis as Wesleyans, holiness movement people who ventured into this Pentecostal idea, the Holy Spirit was the biggest for us. So that's not a strange thing for me. And what's interesting is that this liberal Anglican pundit and observer of the church cites that the church is moving into this age of the Spirit, the age of the Holy Spirit, where we're seeing God primarily or through the chief lens of Holy Spirit. She cites this past century's birth and growth of the Pentecostal charismatic movement as indicative of this. And as someone that comes from the Pentecostal background and has the capacity, like all of us from our backgrounds, to pick it apart too much. You know, that's what we do as we grow. We sometimes pick apart our past too much. It's, it's quite appreciable to me that somebody from outside, Chris, kind of made me circle around and look at it again and say there was some real beauty and richness there. They may not have had the answer in toto, but they were a move of God. We were a move of God. God was speaking through this movement. Now, when I heard her say that, I pushed back. And my pushback, and she and I had a sidebar up here that really wasted your time probably, but I couldn't help it. I just had to have this sidebar with her. And I said, I wasn't trying to act smart. I was just living in my world a little bit with her. And I said, are you talking about modalism? Are you talking about sequential modalism? At which point y'all all glossed over and oh, you know, like what are they talking about? It's, you know, when you hear people in their profession use professional language. It gets boring and you don't know whether they're just trying to act smart. You can all do that in your profession. I wasn't trying to do that. I was generally interested because I know 
sequential modalism and modalism was a heresy that was condemned in the church's first centuries, and it was a big deal. See, as we were developing this idea, this doctrine of the Trinity, and trying to figure out how monotheistic people could carry God in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it was a big deal. We didn't come immediately to this idea of homoousius, same substance, coexistent, co-eternal, co-substantial Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was 800 years and seven major councils of a church, and you still don't understand it the Trinity. But in that wrestling match, there were a lot of our early fathers that weren't condemned as heretical in the beginning. As a matter of fact, the early church in the first 300 years was incredibly gracious in its latitude for doctrine. We only declared people hell-bound and condemned to judgment and heretics after they died when we became so creedal. But in the beginning, people wrestled. Same stuff we wrestle with today, we just don't do it out loud. But they wrestled and they got uh, condemned for it eventually. But one of the condemnations was the condemnation of modalism. Modalism says this, God is not three persons co-eternally, contemporaneously. God is not presently Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in these three personalities or personas. But the modalist said God manifests himself in a mode of Father, and God manifests himself in a mode as son, and God manifests himself in a manifestation, a role, a responsibility, an office of Holy Spirit. And God does that intermittently, not contemporaneously. It would be like me, I, 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 I'm, I'm not much of a golf coach, Stan's gotten better than me, but to some degree, I'm a golf coach. The only way I coach him now is I mess with his mind a lot on the golf course, try to get him strong, I torment him but I can't help his swing a lot, but I'm still his golf coach by making him miserable and bitter as a child. Um, some of you have seen that firsthand, but I'm Stan's golf coach, his pastor, and his father. That's not three persons, that's three roles filled by the same person. You see what I'm saying? Now, a lot, a lot of y'all thought that was a good description of the Trinity. That's actually heresy condemned by the early church. God doesn't fill three roles as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the church concluded. Now, when she said we had God as Father, then we had God as Son, and then the next 2,000 years, I thought she was saying we're going to have God as the Holy Spirit. I was like, well, that's not just modalism. That's sequential modalism because the sequential modalist picked up on how different God was in the Old Testament and then the New Testament, and they said, oh, we get it. God was Father, and then he left off he fired himself from that job and he became son. And then after a while of being son, God became the Holy Spirit. So now God's just the Holy Spirit. That sequential modalism got nullified. And so I pushed back and I said, is that what you're saying? And she said, no, y'all were still glossed over at that time, kind of like you look right, right now a little bit. But it's important, it's important, hang with me here. Doctrine is important. It takes a bad rap, but doctrine and teaching and what we believe is important. She pushed back and she said, that's not what I'm saying at all. She said, sequential modalism or modalism says God manifests God's self intentionally in a sequential distinct way at different times. And she says, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying he was father and then he became son and now he's Holy Spirit. No, no, no. She said, modalism says this is done at the behest and the intention of God. She said, I believe God is contemporaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All I'm saying is that within human capacity and in terms of how we see God, 
These are the ways that in different eras we have most related to God. So this isn't God doing it as much as it's human beings seeing God in a particular way. And she said, I think you can say from Abraham to Jesus that he was Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they saw him as Father, didn't they? And I think there's a case to be made that in the first 2,000 years of the Christian church, Jesus the Son, we call ourselves Christians, has been our chief focus. She says, in the coming age, we are relating not because God is relating to us that way, God is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the chief connection, the primary way that our age is connecting with him, the zeitgeist of this age is connecting with him is through the Holy Spirit. I can go with that. I do wanna say, and I wanna read some scripture to you. I think scripture makes the strong case that Jesus Christ, the Son, never intended for there to be a 2,000-year age of Jesus or a 2,000-year age of the Son. I think Scripture makes the strong case that Jesus Christ intended immediately for the church to move into what Phyllis calls the age of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe Jesus in any way intended for us to spend 800 years, Chris, talking about the doctrine of the Trinity and the second person of the Godhead. I don't think Jesus intended for us to be nearly as enamored with that bronze-skinned man, the idea of the incarnation. Moved by it, touched by it, informed by it, recognizing it, yes, but fixed on it, no. Jesus intended in his ministry for us to move immediately upon his death, burial, and resurrection into what Phyllis calls the age of the Holy Spirit. Now, how all of that relates to our children is gonna become clear in just a moment, but I wanna read some scripture now, and I wanna to try to prove my point. Will you give me a chance to prove my point? Luke, the third chapter, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and this is the story of John the Baptist down on the riverbank, the cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus, and the man Jesus described as the world's greatest prophet. John the Baptist is baptizing, the Bible said, all of Israel. And the religious leaders are there and they're condemning him, but in spite of the condemnation, he keeps doing his work. John the Baptist is up to his waist in water, baptizing hundreds and thousands of people. You say, how does he do that? Well, he didn't actually put his hand on them and baptize them all. In that day, when people were baptized, that's why you preached by the river. As soon as you believed what they were saying, as they preached, you would go down in the water and dip yourself. And the people were flocking to the water. In the midst of that throng, here came his cousin from Galilee, the carpenter's son named Jesus, walking through the crowd. They didn't know he was God. They didn't know anything about the second person of the Trinity or the eternal sonship of this one. He was the carpenter come from Galilee. And John knew him as his cousin. John had never before seen him in this light, but something about the mood, the temperature of that day, when John looked up from the water and saw him, this story ensues. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, they thought John may have been the Christ. John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit, 
John's gospel later says that it was in this setting that John saw Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world away. There he is. But John says to them, I know you want to make me Christ, but I am not the Christ. One is coming mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. And John says, before Jesus even begins his ministry to the end of the age of the Spirit, remember this, John says before Jesus performs one miracle, does one thing, dies on a cross or raises from the dead, John, the greatest of prophets in summation voice of the prophets says, I want to tell you what he's going to do. He, Jesus, is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Before we understood him to be the second person of the Trinity or the eternal son of God, before we even recognized him as divine, John said, I want to tell you the ministry of Jesus is this. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, move on later in the chapter, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized with water. And while he was praying, heaven was open. This is not in support of sequential modalism because the work of the fullness of God is always contemporaneous. John said he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus was baptized, the Bible says the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. So affirming that Jesus was about the age of the Spirit, the birth of the Spirit, upon his baptism, he had the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, the voice of the Father, you're my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Look at verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself, now this is it's just an interesting juxtaposition, you'll wonder why I wanted this first. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. That's a statement about the incarnation. He was a man. The Messiah was a man. So Jesus begins his ministry as a man. God has come in flesh, but the fullness of that work will be a spiritual work, the baptism of God, of all people, with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, go to the end of Luke's gospel, the 24th chapter. We just used this text for our Eastertide series on Scripture. This is just after Christ has been resurrected, and it's just before Christ descends into the heavens. Now, I want you to read this carefully. I'm contending that Jesus intended immediately to send us into the age of the Holy Spirit. While they were telling these things, what things? It was a group of people who had seen Jesus after his resurrection bodily in bodily form. They were enamored by the fact that he'd been crucified, he had raised from the dead, and they had him back in bodily form, and they're talking about how they've got Jesus back. And while he's telling these things, or they're telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. I mean, he just appears. And when he says, peace to you, they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit. Now, John said, I'll tell you what he's going to do. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He lives out his earthly ministry, 30 years old, as a man, the son of Joseph. 
gets crucified. They lose him. They want him back. He comes back, sticks out his hands and says, feel me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Incarnation, God in flesh. He's underscoring it. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. He's not a ghost. The food doesn't just drop to the floor. It goes into a belly. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, back when we were seeing God as Father, all that time we were seeing God as Father, the prophets were actually talking about the Son, you just couldn't see it. And I told you all of this must be fulfilled. Go to the next verse. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And he said, you guys are witnesses of these things. And then Jesus ends the gospel of Luke the way John the Baptist began the gospel of Luke Jesus said, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. Can anybody tell me what the promise of the Father was? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus concludes his ministry by saying, I was here in flesh. I died. I've come back in flesh. You're not going to lose me again. We're going to start this cool religion where God is here in flesh, and I'm going to have a big palace, and three times a year, people are going to come over to Jerusalem and see me. That's what they wanted but it's not what he promised. He said, I'm gonna send the forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city. Listen to what he tells them to do. You are to stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you're clothed with power from on high, the Holy Spirit. And he leads them out as far as Bethany. And he lifts up his hands and blesses them. And while he was blessing them, he doesn't build a temple or a palace, as he blesses them, he leaves them. And their hearts are broken again. The incarnate God parts from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, which he never told them to do. He said, follow me, obey me, believe me, go to Jerusalem. But there they worshiped him and then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. But I wanna read something in a moment that tells you why they quit worshiping and they went to Jerusalem and they were continually in the temple praising God. So the ascension. Now, the book of Luke is the prequel. The book of Acts is its sequel, two books written by the same guy. Actually, the book of Acts was written first, at which point the writer reflectively said, you know, I think I need to write a gospel to show the understory, the, the pre-story to all of this. So Luke is followed by the book of Acts. Look at Acts 1. The same writer says, the first account I composed, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, 
All you get in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the beginning of what Jesus began to do and teach. Now, it is so stupendous and wonderful that a lot of people get fixed on the Gospels and want no more. A lot of people get fixed on the idea of an incarnate God, a bronze-skinned Galilean. We paint pictures of him in our mind. We dig our fingers into him like Mary and say, I'm not going to let you go. But he is always saying, let me go. And in the incarnate form, he is parting from us, blessing us and saying, there's something else. I'm going to send the promise of the father to you. The promise of the father and the plan of God is not for the eternal son of God to be in flesh and to be worshiped and for us to build memorials to him and genuflect in his direction all of our life. It's bigger than that. Body of Christ is going to be better than that. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day, we just read it, when he was taken up to heaven. After he had by the Holy Spirit, age of the Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. That's what they were standing around talking about. Appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. We just read it, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Gathering them together, he did not command them to worship him, to hold on to him, to get stuck on him. He commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. Now, in Luke 24, he said simply the promise of the Father. In Acts 1, more reflectively, he's gonna explain what that is clearly to wait for what the Father has promised, which he said you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, now he's quoting John the Baptist, for John baptized with water, but what you've heard from me is you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit 2,000 years from now when the church finally gets around to understanding the fullness of the Holy Spirit, right? No, 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 the age of the Spirit was the initiative of Jesus from the beginning. But we're kind of slow to this. We kind of get stuck on some things, and it's understandable. Who wouldn't get stuck? What group of people wouldn't get stuck on God coming down in the form of a baby? That's something that we could kind of hang around a while, couldn't we? God in a manger, God in flesh. But Jesus said, I'm gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel, which means you'll be the king. We like this deal of you in flesh, you on the throne, all the nations genuflecting, we're secretary of state, secretary of defense, and vice presidents. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But I'm going to come back to essential Jesus. You want essential Jesus? Essential Jesus is not essential son teaching. Essential Jesus is the teaching of the Spirit. He said, I'm going to bring you back. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, see, Luke in the first book didn't say all of that explicitly. But before he ascended, he told them, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. And after he said this about the Holy Spirit, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. But out of sight was not out of mind. And for 2,000 years, Phyllis says, we have been focused on Christology. 
the doctrine of Jesus, this man Christ Jesus, when in reality he parted from us and told us that the initiative of God was going to come as Spirit, as Holy Spirit. It was always essential Jesus to talk about the Holy Spirit. Luke said that they worshiped him. In Luke 24, he floats into heaven and he's told them, go to Jerusalem. But instead of doing what he said, they worshiped him. I get it. God in a manger, God walking on water, God raising dead people, God in flesh, God crucified, God resurrected, I get it. God gets up out of a grave, I get it. God floats into the sky in a bodily form, I get it, you worship. But that's not what he told them to do. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, Luke 24 says they were worshiping, Acts 1 says they were gazing intently into the sky, same writer, they were worshiping. While he was going, behold, two men of white clothing stood beside them, and they said, this is great. We need to build a tabernacle here. It's all about the worship of Jesus. Right? No. Two men in white clothing. What were they? Angels. Stood beside them and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Folks, they are worshiping the expression of God we know as the eternal Son ascending into the heavens. We reflect on it 2,000 years later, make it a part of our liturgy. But they were standing there at the ascension worshiping, and the angels didn't come down and say, thumbs up. The angels said, what are you doing? This would be a good message when worshiping is not a good thing. He didn't ask us to worship, he asked us to follow, and he asked us to obey. And the angels didn't come down, get beside them and say, us too. Now, that, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of room to worship Jesus at some point, someplace. But the angels didn't saddle up beside and say, us too. The angels saddled up beside these guys worshiping, singing a praise chorus, probably something like, our God is an awesome God, something like that. They're praising. The angels looked at them and said, what are you doing? We're worshiping. It's not what he told you to do. He told you to go to Jerusalem. Don't get stuck on Jesus so that you might fully have Jesus. Mary wrapped her arms around him and said, you're not getting away from me again. He said, let me go, Mary, so you can have me, Mary. Let me go the way you want me so you can have me the way you need me. That's the idea that Jesus was positing in the Holy Spirit. Instead of God in one man's flesh, which is a beautiful truth we believe, the divinity of Christ, the message of Jesus was not build me a tabernacle, worship me in this form. The message was Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. You're the body of Christ because the same spirit that raises me from the dead will dwell in you, quicken your mortal body and make you now the body of Christ. And now instead of limited to one expression and one body, everywhere people are filled with God's Spirit, therein is the body of God. Now, 
They're worshiping, and the angel said, what are you doing standing here looking in the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I believe that's not talking about the coming someday. I believe that's talking about his coming back in the power of the Holy Spirit to them that very day. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Don't miss this. They, they quit worshiping Jesus and they followed Jesus and obeyed Jesus and go to the upper room. Who were they? 120 of them. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, the other Judas, the disciples. And these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, 120 of them, and included were the women who had attended to Jesus' dead body, and look at this, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I want you to identify with Mary for a little bit, and identifying with Mary, you'll understand the first 2,000 years of the church in our Christology. You think Mary wasn't connected to the physical body of Jesus? Anybody here think that his mother who carried him in her womb was not lifted Jean when her crucified boy came. What did Mary feel like when she got her boy back? My friend, a preacher in Austin, Texas named Rex Johnson lost his wife and child to a drunk driver in an intersection 30 years ago in Dallas. In that car was his wife and two children. When he got to the scene, the people at the scene told him that all three had lost their life. Rex collapsed. I still remember that day. He collapsed, fell to the earth, and when he woke up from his fainting, his little girl was standing there in front of him. He had still lost his wife and son, burned up in the car, but they were wrong. His daughter had survived. And he told me, Kevin, in that moment, she was born again to me. In that moment, she who was dead became alive. And he said, the emotions within me of having lost, he said, simultaneously, I experienced the lowest moment of my life and the greatest moment of my life in the same moment. Do you know what Mary felt like when she carried a baby in her womb, when she watched him minister? Do you know, Mary, did you know? Do you know what she felt like when she saw him tortured and crucified? Do you know what it must have meant to her for him to raise from the dead? She was connected to the body of God named Jesus like no other. Some of you from a Catholic background may have overextended that, but you have not overextended it nearly as much as Protestants have underestimated that truth. She was a profound woman, and she was connected to the body of God. The church calls her mother of God. I understand what they're saying. And then she lost him again to the sky, and that woman so connected, as is the Christian church, to the body, Jesus, Christology, she went to Jerusalem longing for him, as the angel said, to come back in like manner. Mary knew what it was to be connected to Jesus and to want him a specific way. Oh, she wanted him. 
She wanted to wrap her arms around him. Last text, Acts 2, 1 through 4. And as that 120 made it a few days to the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and Mary must have thought, my boy, the one who walked on water and walked through walls and rose from the dead and was born of her loins, my boy. The disciples must have thought, our friend, the king, he's gonna restore Israel. Woo, Jesus is coming back. White horse, marauding king, a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and as they looked for him to appear, there didn't appear unto them Jesus, there appeared unto them clothes of tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance utterly supernatural and the fullness of the Christian church and the fullness of Jesus message comes to this moment as he comes back and Mary does not have her boy in bodily form nor her God in bodily form oh yes she does because now the bodily form is hers he who filled her womb now fills her soul and the womb was nary as deep as the soul. And Mary had him now not in utero, but Mary had him now in spirit and soul, and he had never been closer even when he kicked in her belly. And the fullness of Jesus is now the expression of God we know as Holy Spirit reading through Acts 2, and we'll come back to the rest of this next week. Verse 14, go through it quickly with me, John. As they were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter and the rest, who were just as amazed as anybody, Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to the 50,000 people that were in the streets that day, there for Passover and Pentecost, Jewish people, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Back when we knew God as Father, the prophets were actually talking about this, we just couldn't understand it. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit. We don't understand that as the third person called the Holy Spirit, it's just God's spirit. And we don't even understand the sun in between that makes it all possible. But this is what Joel said, and Peter said, this is what's happening today, my Jewish brothers and sisters. This is what Joel talked about. I will pour forth. This is the message of God. This is the good news of Jesus. I will pour forth my spirit, not on a few people or an elect people, not just on some people. I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. You say, what in the world does this have to do with VBS and Jessica's question and our children and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy? Your sons and daughters will be so filled with God's spirit that God will be able to speak through them. Little bitty gang, little bitty kids. God will be able to speak through them and a child will lead you. This impacts your children, this work of the Holy Spirit. The one God who put them in his lap, the God who created them in his image, the God who loved them tender, now is actually going to fill them full 
Sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men, what's this have to do with our youth group? Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Now watch this, keep going. Verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. See, this isn't, this isn't sequential modalism. We're not letting go of Jesus. But those who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. This fullness of the Spirit is the ultimate salvation of humankind. He's going to pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. Keep going. Verse 29. Peter finished by saying, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, back when we knew him as father, that he died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants, David's on his throne, had no idea it would be God or a Messiah, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Didn't know what he was talking about, but David spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. And Peter looked out at this Jewish audience and said, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And therefore, instead of staying here in bodily form, he was exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father, what happened to Jesus when he floated into the sky? Well, they worshiped him, but he had something else to do. He told them to go to Jerusalem. He didn't receive their worship. He went into the heavens and he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which was going to be greatly emphasized 2,000 years after. No. He received the Holy Spirit, and Jesus has poured forth this, all flesh, touched by the Spirit of God, all humanity. He's poured forth this, which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord, Father, said to my Lord, Messiah, Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart. They had crucified the Messiah, and now they knew. And they staggered under the load of that weight that they had crucified God. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? How do you make up for that? And Peter said to them, repent, change your mind, be baptized in the name of the one you crucified. The blood you shed will wash away all of it. And you will receive the gift of Jesus back in bodily form. No. You will receive the fullness, the essence of everything Jesus ever promised. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's this have to do with our kids? For the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, which I think is a whole bunch more than most people predict. And I'll conclude with these words. And so to the answer, what does all of this age of the Spirit mean? Well, the age of the Spirit was intended by Jesus a long time ago. We may just now be recognizing it. And my old Pentecostal ancestors... We may have way overemphasized tongues and speaking in tongues and all of that. We may have got so caught up in tongues that we forgot about the Holy Spirit. But in our non-academic, sincere, humble, non-intellectual way, God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. And that little old group of people back there, Appalachian and rural, Charles, they were open. 
It was bigger than we could have ever imagined. We were still fundamentalist and narrow. We thought we were the only ones. We captured the gift and excised everyone else. We were as wrong as the body of Christ had ever been, but we were right when we believed that God didn't teach us doctrines and God didn't send us spiritual people to capture spirituality for us. But John Williams, what it means is every one of these babies here on this table, on this platform, we can tell them that you are not simply harbingers and recipients of a doctrine and a story age old, but you are a part of the age of Jesus Christ, the age of the fullness of his spirit, where literally my eight-year-old daughter is filled with the fullness of God's spirit. So the message and good news of God that we will teach our children is that Jesus came to let all of us know that we are not simply to worship one man, one body, we are not simply to build palaces and temples for our Christology, but true Christology is that we are all filled, baptized, covered, and led by the Holy Spirit of God. The message of Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, even Jesus said, God in us, for I have been with you, but I shall be in you. What will we teach our children about this age of the Spirit? Well, what Jesus taught us to 2,000 years ago. We will teach our children not to be rebels, but to have a healthy respect for tradition. I will teach my children to not do what I did to the Pentecostal tradition I grew out of and leave it and abandon it the way you've left your Catholic or Episcopal tradition, but to understand in every movement of the body of Christ there was something special, renewable, redeemable, and good there. God has been moving throughout 2,000 years, and our children are not called to be rebels any more than we are but we are called to have a healthy respect for tradition and the work of God in the ages before us, our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents. We will teach our children that God gave them their brain, their logic, and their reason. We will teach them that the school and the academy, we will teach them that the intellectual sciences are not the enemies, but the gifts of God. We will teach our children to love the Bible. We will teach them not to use it as a sword militantly to crucify others as their Lord was crucified by the same, but we will teach our children to love the Bible and to learn how to find themselves, others, and God within its pages. And we will teach our children that they can trust their experiences. We will teach them that they will dream dreams and see visions. We will teach them that they should learn how God speaks and leads them. And we will teach them the wisdom of Proverbs 11:14 and 24:6 that in the multitude of counselors there is safety. And we will teach them that the message of Jesus, we will teach them that the message of Jesus is that God came near and that God is so involved that God has filled them with the fullness of his spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus himself from the dead. And God has given them the voices of many holy counselors like scripture, reason, tradition, experience, creation from sunsets to waterfalls to atomic function to their own beloved pets, other humans, their own dreams and desires. And we will teach them that in the multitude of these, there is safety. And we will teach them that in the monolith of only one of those, there is danger. And we will teach them that the promise of God's closeness is unto us and our children, that's them. And we will teach them upon our sons and daughters, God will pour out God's spirit. This we will instruct our children and place as frontlets before their eyes. Brothers and sisters, ever since Jesus, we have always been in the age of the spirit. May we now recognize it 
and may you go home knowing that your baptized, communion-taken babies, even the ones that haven't made it that far, that stood on this stage, God has poured out his spirit upon all flesh. This is the message of Jesus, and we are called to recognize that. Thank God for the true age of the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen? amen. You'll have to go home and listen to this one again. I'm going to. It's a good one. And it's the truth. We'll pick up where we left off. There's even more to the story. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Bless these people who are filled with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, God in flesh, the body of Christ. May we recognize your nearness in us and our children. We go from this place listening for your voice, seeing you in all we do. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Go in God's grace.